0: Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Our guest today is Dr. Joshua Bach, world-renowned AI researcher, a brilliant mind, entrepreneur and cognitive scientist. He published widely about cognitive architectures, mental representation, emotion, social modeling and multi-agent systems. He was born in the former German Democratic Republic and earned his PhD in Cognitive Science from the University of Osnabrück in Germany. He worked at the MIT Media Lab, the Harvard Program for Evolutionary Dynamics, and is now VP of Research at the AI Foundation in San Francisco.
1: Joshua, it is a great pleasure to meet you. Uh, to have you on the podcast and welcome.
2: Likewise, thank you.
1: I have experienced you as a brilliant mind and a deeply caring human being who has put himself in service of humanity through cognitive science, artificial intelligence and philanthropic endeavor. Why and how have you become such a force for good in the world? What happened in your life that put you on this path?
2: I find that the question of what's good and what is not good is a very difficult one. And in my own perspective, it seems to be that we don't have that much time left as a civilization. Basically we jump very far out of some entropic pool of life forms and manage to a few generations in which we are not very much subject to the pressures of the evolutionary environment. And this enabled us to reflect the universe in interesting ways. And we got used to this very quickly. Just within a handful of generations, we thought this is the normal state. And this is what I was born into. And now I realize that this is not going to last for many more generations. And this also diminishes my uh, hope that I can actually make a large difference. Still, I'm trying to play a very long game, and I think that our societies are incentivized to play two short games. And if there's anything that I can make uh, happen to make that game longer, um, I'll try to do this. But uh, I'm also not, uh, uh, I don't have the illusion that I'm going to make a big difference.
1: Yeah, so humility is another one of your wonderful traits. <laughs> uh, yes,
2: actually, humility is my foremost virtue. Virtue, everybody noticed this, is right. This, I'm so humble. It's totally obvious. <laughs> it's what I do best.
1: <laughs> well, you know, that, uh, ac- according to the um, to the vertical growth models that I subscribe to. Mm-hmm. Um, humor is at the top. So, but let's go back to artificial intelligence, which is and cognitive science, which is uh, uh, what I began to study back in the uh, early eighties. But which is your core uh, specialty. So AI um, provides, of course, a conceptual framework that enables us to understand ourselves, and because we want to copy it to create systems, robots, um, software uh, that model us, that uh, hopefully will help us um, create a better world that will save us from the mistakes of the past. So in what ways can AI, from your point of view, help us understand our own minds better, understand um, humanity better, and even lead us toward a world that doesn't eliminate us based on the mistakes that we've done in the past.
2: I think of intelligence as the ability to make models. And uh, it's not necessarily the same thing as uh, being wise, that is picking the right goals, or being smart, which means reaching your goals. It's uh, some search for truth. It's the ability to make sense of the data that you get by creating a function that is able to predict the next set of data in some sense. And this can be useful and it can often not be useful, which is why a highly intelligent system don't need to be smart systems. But if you want to regulate the universe, you need to be truthful if, because you cannot regulate what you cannot understand. You're not going to get the right result or the best possible result. And so if we build systems that are able to model our condition better Um, that help us to understand the situation that we are in and explore different avenues, Um, that might make a very big difference. Um, In my view, for humanity, the biggest open question is governance. Most of the problems that we have to solve are not hard, in the sense that nobody sees the solution. And the problem is usually not, oh my god, people with different moral values uh, are in power, that's why they do the wrong thing. And if people with my moral values were in power, they would be doing the right thing. But um, the problem is that the people that we uh, set uh, put in power, that is in positions where they design our incentives, how do we design their incentives? So for instance, if we put some um, body to make a new law in, in position, how do we make sure that this person doesn't get punished for making a law that is in our, all best interest instead gets rewarded for that, right? So uh, what is the fitness function that makes sure that uh, after a few generations, uh, humanity looks back and decides this was the right direction? How do we make sure that governance is error correcting? Error correction I think is for policy making and for decision making the most important uh, skill that you need to have, right? If you've got error correction, you've got it done. And our governments are largely not incentivized to error correct, they're incentivized against our correction. If you make some blunder, the best thing is to follow through on it because otherwise you might lose your job, you might lose your position, you might lose your credibility. And um, so understanding the situation that we are in, having truthful models, having transparency and accountability, I think might go some way.
1: Yes, I agree. Well, it all comes down to some sort of ethics and and morals. The question is, um, I just had this conversation the other day within the context of um, a climate endowment that we're currently working on. Uh, And when uh, we believe that we can create a climate endowment, we need to bring people around the table who represent the climate. Uh, which, of course, uh, would include a world-centric worldview rather than an egocentric or an even ethnocentric worldview because the climate um, and climate change and the CO2 doesn't stop at uh, uh, at, at borders of nations. It just goes around the planet and into the air. And uh, so the question is, how can we ensure that uh, such governance comes from the highest possible ethics that humanity is able to, um, to come up with. And, you know, which brings us to your definition, for instance, of ethics. You know, in other words, just let me explain a little bit what I mean. When it comes to integrity and transparency, which you mentioned, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm using Trump as an example, uh, Trump is within integrity from his own mindset. He believes he acts out of integrity and he is fully transparent. However, is that the level of consciousness that we want? Is that the kind of mindset that we want? An egocentric or an even American-first and ethnocentric um, um, worldview? Or do we need, within the context of climate climate to remain, to stay within the um, climate endowment, climate emergency, uh, do we need a world-centric kind of ethics? Can you say something to your understanding on ethics?
2: I think that uh, of ethics is the negotiation of conflicts of interest under conditions of shared purpose. It's basically about modeling consequences and then comparing these consequences to intended outcomes with respect to a long game. And uh, my personal perspective, the issue with Trump might be that he is not very much interested in long games. And that's not because he deliberately doesn't like long games. It's just because he doesn't look there. It's nothing that he's incentivized for. Personally, I have the impression that he's just bored and uh, he had nothing else to do. So he wanted to have that business card. But uh, he was not motivated by uh, a, an idea of how the world should work. He doesn't seem to think in systems. He seems to th- he see the world as a bunch of deals, like a used car salesman. And uh, I... I think the reason why Trump got to power is, of course, not because he was devious and insidious and so on. It was uh, because um, the majority of voters felt at this particular point in time that he was better than some of the alternatives that were offered. And uh, it might have been also largely a statement about the fact that people don't have the impression that the U.S. is being administered in their best interest.
1: Right so in coming back to the application of um of artificial intelligence within the context of um current crisis and so on and and with having in mind the audience that we're actually uh targeting which are investors and entrepreneurs who are using their know-how their money their um everything they have to make a difference through their investments, through their entrepreneurship uh, activities, and so on. Uh, What is your recommendation um, in terms of the application of artificial intelligence, cognitive sciences? How can we help guide investors and entrepreneurs to um, move in the right direction, from your perspective?
2: Um, The company that I just joined, AI Foundation, is concerned about um, the way that AI is currently being used and uh, that is very much without a regard to the consequences. And this uh, doesn't mean that um, people are thoughtless and so on, but they are driven by the incentives of the markets, which means, for instance, we create products that um, uh, um, currently maximize engagement. And the maximization of engagement is not necessarily what you want to have if you want to build a global brain. What you want to have is maximization of relevance, and you want to build tools that are useful to people instead of um, being parasitic on them and making them them subservient. Um, There's a conflict often when you uh, build a business that, um, for instance, you might want to have the data of the users and, eventually use these data against them. One of the dominant business models that currently exists on the internet is um, advertising, which basically means providing attack surfaces for corporate minds on biological minds to uh, influence some of the decisions of the biological minds in the interest of the corporate mind. And for the chance to hack your mind, the corporation is willing to pay uh, some money to the tech corporation and the tech company can use this to develop applications that are generally useful. It's it's not that much money per user, but uh, there's so much money coming onto one big pile that you can use it to create software that scales, that is usable to a very, very large number of people. And that's why eventually this is a viable model and something that has been largely of force for good. And yet there is this Big tension that when you put some device in your home that records your voice and uh, records your thoughts or reads your emails to give you recommendations about what you want to do next, you also realize this thing is not totally aligned with your own interests. This is doing something that might work against you at some point, And that is um, that's letting other people try to hack you. It's collecting your data. It's allowing you, them to manipulate you, to uh, help you to act against your own best interests, to misinform you, to fudge your worldview. And we are a society that is in some sense built on fake news, which is why we are so concerned about fake news. If everything was built on truth, uh, there would be criteria that would allow people to figure out what's true. And now suddenly we have the situation where so many forces use this new technology to uh, to shift people around. And AI foundation is um, what made me interested in working with them is in part the, the fact that they think about how can we build AI that helps you that is your extension into the world that is a tool that you are using that belongs to you not to something else
1: right so how, how can we influence that you know from an investor perspective is is pretty difficult we all see that um, you know that we've got to get involved in this. We all see that AI is coming. We all see that AI is going to eventually uh, be used in every single one of the asset classes available on the market, in every single kind of company. We're moving toward global digitalization and so on. So, uh, what are, uh, you know, let's say, top three things that we need to, uh, from your perspective, uh, we need to look at or consider? Uh, prior to, um, well, from many dimensions, making an investment in a particular asset class or picking the the proper asset classes uh, to invest in. Uh, Given the fact that we have uh, many dimensions that influence uh, the world, in in our case is climate emergency that uh, dictates from our perspective, uh, where we are active, the Aqua Group. Um, the priorities: priority number one is climate change. Priority number two is feeding uh, the people um, of this world. Priority number two: making sure that it's uh, um, e- inequality is being addressed, um, and um, and education for and um, and of course as much as we can uh, have a, um, influence. Through lobbying, what uh, you know, governance that you just mentioned. So, as as an expert, what would you say? uh, Where shall we look? Um, uh, What should be the order of uh, of the day? How can we make an assessment? How can we use um, your thinking or the ideas that you are looking at in our due diligence process? How can we? Make sure that um, we use our money in the right direction for the right things. What does it true? That what is truth? How do we make that assessment? Is there ultimate truth?
2: From the observer perspective, if you are embedded into a system that is reasonably complex, you usually cannot know the ground truth of the system. So the particular way in which it behaves, uh, even the decomposition of the universe into systems is. Um, simplifying it often in a way that makes it very hard to uh, make sense of this of the things. This There might be a decomposition of the world into separate entities that interact with each other and this decomposition might not really cut the world of the, uh, the joints. And sometimes there are no joints. Sometimes things are interconnected in such a way that this separation of concerns is not entirely possible. Uh, some of my friends in AI are very concerned about AI and weapons, for instance. So they uh, tr- try to get a ban on um, using weapons and, uh, that uh, are autonomous and use AI technology, for instance, drones that are fully autonomous. And I support this initiative, but I, I think it's a relatively minor concern. I think that there is a potential if you lower the cost of conflict by having AI-supported weapons because there are fewer people coming home and body bags. So uh, we can afford to have more conflicts that are armed instead of being forced to find non-violent solutions to negotiate. This might kill a few hundred thousand or maybe a few million people. But what, for instance, a bigger concern is to me is AI in the financial system. If you were a a rogue trader and you task an artificial intelligence, imagine we get to a system that is a universal modeler, make me some money on the stock market and you can reinvest 90% of what you make into buying more computers and buying more data. And at some point this AI might find out that there is only seven and a half billion people and they are only alive for two and a half billion seconds each. And this is going to completely outmodel us. And I don't see how our financial infrastructure can withstand such an attack. Imagine you have this AI like Bitcoin taking the energy of Scandinavia or the equivalent of that to drive computers, just to build some brain that attacks us, that attacks our dopaminergic system of our society to maximize its own reward. The only way that our economy could survive such a thing would be that we turn the economy into an AI, that the financial system becomes an AI, that it becomes intelligent. And uh, that means that we now embody a set of rules into a machine. And we don't know whether these are the right rules. And if they're not the right rules, that is if these rules do not preserve human aesthetics, If they are not uh, generating something that we want to live in, how can we fix this? How can we regain this agency that we just gave to the machine? And in many ways, we already gave agency to the machines, most of it. Most of what happens in the world right now is not being decided by people, but it's being decided by entities that maximize shareholder value. And we hesitate of giving politicians more power that is our public administration more power over the corporations because we don't trust them with this power because we realize how poorly incentivized these politicians are to do the right thing. It's too easy to buy them, right? This is the main reason why we don't give all this power to the politicians because we cannot make sure that they're not being bought off once they have it. And these are difficult questions. So uh, when you start looking, it seems that there are easy answers. But the harder you look, The fewer buttons seem to be available to change the course of history and you realize that humanity and the state of the world is not the result of the absence of attempts to fix it, but the result of billions of attempts to fix it and make it better. Many of those were successful. So there is a particular way in which the world is and we are very tempted to see the world not in in terms of what it is, but in in terms of how it should be different. And in order to be truthful, we first need to understand how exactly it is. And everything is for a reason. And without that reason, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be talking. So without this insanity, this, this weird, completely unsustainable society that is uh, burning the ecosystem that is depends on and uh, is destroying its own resources at an alarming pace and so on, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have a technological civilization with cheap airfare, with amazing education, which uh, with... Uh, almost free food, with internet, with access to the entire knowledge of the world, to everyone, basically. This is, this amazing achievement, we wouldn't have that. And if we had a sustainable society, we probably wouldn't have it. So uh, what should we be doing? We can recognize that there are some principles in our own mind that uh, ensure that we are learning. For instance, when we make a decision and we are well-adjusted, we, we have make a decision of to do something differently. If we are well-adjusted people, we remember that we made this decision. We remember what we expected that decision to have as an outcome, and if this outcome doesn't manifest, we will question our decision, and we made uh, roll it back and make a different decision. Right? This is a major force of learning. It's in some sense a learning algorithm. And when we pass a new law, do we do a similar thing? For instance, uh, do we attach something to the law that says we expect the following outcome of this law? For instance, if we repeal net neutrality, uh, as as Pi promises us, this is going to have the following outcome. If this outcome doesn't manifest after a given time, does this law uh, automatically roll back and gets replaced by something better? Is there some repercussion for uh, people that made this decision against advice that was available at the time? Who uh, is accountable if they don't act on available knowledge, on the available models that told them the outcome? In which circumstances do we act on models at all? When is it that we are not interested in understanding the models? Because we think not knowing the models will make the world better because it might look us at, make us look at things that are very ugly, right? We see that in the early 80s Um, ExxonMobil discovered that in 2019, we would cover the 415 ppm threshold for carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. They made very accurate uh, predictions that we would cross uh, 0.9 degrees centigrade this year. And we did the news this in the 1980s. And they actually went to the governments and told them about this and told them, please regulate us. And uh, it was impossible to impose a regulation that would have affected all the fossil fuel industry on the planet. And none of them wanted to take the first step and die alone. It's, so these systemic forces, are in a sen- sense, what gets us. its I don't think it's the malice of individuals. It's in some sense the fact that the individuals are not locally accountable, that the payoff matrix is different, that the incentives are different. Very often what looks like stupidity and malice to us is just people understanding their incentives. It's understanding if I make a different decision, it will not mean that I can prevent the end of humanity. It might just mean that I get fired, or I cannot use airplanes anymore, or uh, my children won't have uh, a good education anymore, or I will lose my friends but I cannot change things at scale. And if you want to change things at scale, this is maybe the thing that we want to build. I suspect that we, for instance, need something like a global brain. Maybe social media needs to turn into a global brain. Maybe we need to look at the principles where you have small unities like neur- uh, units like neurons that work together to maximize their individual reward to get fat in the brain. And as a result, as an emergent dynamic of the system, they do something that's useful for the organism. Religion has been an attempt to build something like this, but um, we now mostly agree that religion is not uh, tenable for doing this in modern societies, because religion tends to confuse people about the underlying reality. So we need to build truthful systems that allow people to think and act in larger relationships and larger systems and larger dynamics. And um, we need to basically reward people for doing this and uh, take them out of the decision-making uh, processes to the degree that they are not incentivized to be doing this locally. So it's, it's not so much a question about good and bad, it's a question about outcomes, it's a question about dynamics. And I don't have an easy solution there, because many of the, these things that we need to do will not probably not be short-term profitable. They will not be short-term profitable in the sense that a local entrepreneur is going to get very wealthy. They're going to be uh, long term profitable in the sense that there will be humanity to be around to see the results that people have grandchildren and grand grandchildren that will find a working ecosystem and uh, a place that is worth living in.
1: Right. So if I uh, hear you correctly and I I, I totally agree with you, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, uh, We have so much uh, accomplished already, so much Uh, evolution has already brought us where we are here um in a um, let's say if if we lived in a simulation or in a game maybe we do uh we're probably at the at the later stages uh where we have the greatest uh how should i say <laughs> Ex- experience from the game we have achieved but we're uh, close to the end of the game so um so that's where the danger is if i hear you correctly uh we would need a global, build a, a global brain that is collectively, that is smarter than we are collectively right now in yes. order to help save us.
2: Yes, a civilization is already smarter than individuals. Yes. As an individual, you're not even going to figure out Turing complete languages by yourself. Right. Uh, and epistemology and so on. It takes many, many generations of an unbroken intellectual tradition. And this has sped up recently and we can... Uh, Build systems in which people can talk in ways that makes them achieve more together than they could do individually or in small teams, and it's a chance that we can be using. And I don't think that it's almost over. We are the first ones. Really we are not the last ones on this planet. I think that are going to be generally intelligent. Are going to mirror the universe. Uh, life is going to go on long after us. We're just the first species that is going to leave more phones than bones. In the sediments we are the first species that was able to get out of the di- uh, dirt uh out of uh, lift uh, themselves up from the ground far enough to look at the stars it makes sense of them it's quite amazing i mean from some perspective it's also pointless because uh evolution is just about breeding what better yeast we are some kind of yeast that is competing with other yeast and the uh Structures that we build are there to have surfaces on which we can outcompete the other yeast. Yeah, but it's beautiful
1: yeast. I mean, come on, to to see the beauty of you know that uh, comes out of your um, your uh, head and the beauty uh, that comes out of your hands and uh, the beauty of your children and uh, the beauty of the stuff that we've created. I mean, we are so blessed. So it's actually beautiful yeast that we produced. And I think the reason why we're having this conversation has to do with the fact that we both want. And people are listening to this, and uh, you know, want for this to uh, somehow survive in a in a beautiful thrive, I should say. And so we want to keep what's good and let uh, get rid of the the not so good one.
2: Of course, this is the yeast talking. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds a lot like what what intelligent (laughs) yeast would say. is identified with being that yeast and thinks about this. So uh, there's this tricky question. If we build uh, machines that can think and can make sense of the world and their own place in the world, so they become sentient, they have agency and because they have preferences and goals, how can we make them subscribe to our aesthetics? From the perspective of most species on this planet, we are uh, probably the vilest species around. We are a pretty disgusting monkey that eats everyone. And uh, so the reason why we are the only hominid left, there are neither, no other Homo floriensis Homo neandertaliensis, they all disappeared, the Denisovans, in the last hundred thousand years. They met us. So Homo sapiens will them.
1: be um, replaced by non yeast called robots or what? Uh, what uh, is no, your... It's
2: not, no, it's not clear. Uh, of course, uh, I'm a human being. I have children. I, I do care about their happiness, about I care about these human aesthetics because I'm identified with this. It just is not self-evident that any intelligent system, uh, even including those that we build ourselves, will share our perspective. And we have to bear this in mind. We have to be truthful. When we perform our actions, when we make decisions, we have to be guided by the aesthetics that we want, by the preferences of what we think would be a good world. But uh, to understand that it's not necessarily true that we are the best solution for manning the battleships in the fight against entropy. There could be better machines than us. Yeah, of course. To do that the job.
1: But the question is, as an investor, and we're having this conversation, is yes, <laughs> caring about <laughs> investing and <laughs> in building companies and caring about the planet and and uh, doing, you know, how should I say, try to change the world in, you know with anything and everything that we have. The question still remains, um, how do we make it practical? How do we, um, I mean, you and I met at a conference on ethics and AI, you mm. know. Um, how can we take that into the day-to-day work uh, in, a, in a meaningful way?
2: So I tried to circle it a little bit. I grew up in communist Eastern Germany. And uh, in some sense, we do share a little bit of history because you also have roots in the East. I was That's a communist,
1: I... come on. I not yes. when I grew up, I was a t- totally com- committed communist until I saw a different reality and
2: woke up. Yes, uh, I, I think I probably was a communist right into my teens. And in some sense, this idea of uh, everyone according to their needs and to everyone... Uh, Um, everybody contributes according to what they can contribute. This uh, still sounds like a pretty good idea to me. It's just the ideas on how to design the system to approximate this best, they have changed. Because uh, there was this thing Eastern Germany after uh, the Russians uh, freed us from fascism, made a deal with the Russians. Our working class remained free from oppression and exploitation by the bourgeoisie. And the working class realized they still needed to show up in the factories, and they still needed to work, only not so much, because nobody owned the factories, and nobody really had skin in the game, and that people that administered the factories were bureaucrats. It was like American Healthcare Administration. They were not interested in improving any... Uh, part of that thing because it would not have made their job any easier or more rewarding and so on the uh, bureaucracy the decision makers were not incentivized to improve the behavior of the system and as a result there was no innovation Uh, people worked the same hours as they did in the 1950s and they didn't have a much higher standard of living than in the 1950s and so to the great dismay of youthful uh, teenage me and many East German uh, leftist intellectuals that uh, were very instrumental in starting this revolution. It just mostly happened from leftist idealism, from liberal idealism in the East, which felt that Eastern Germany was not liberal enough. It was too oppressive. We wanted to have a society where people get liberated into doing the right thing. And instead, what does the working class do? They elect to get exploited again by the bourgeoisie. That was a betrayal. Because I was unable to see the ground truth. uh, The ground truth was... That people had this baseline. They saw Western Germany and they saw that being exploited by the uh, bourgeoisie, by corporations that uh, trade lifetime against money that you can use to buy food and housing and so on, gives better results. You get better food and uh, better housing and better cultural traditions and uh, better schools and uh, better quality of the air and uh, better streets and more future by uh, having a society uh, that is organized in this way. It doesn't mean it's a just society. There are probably better ways of doing this. And we just haven't found them. And the way that we had that was mostly driven by moral ideals didn't work because the incentives were not right. We mismodeled reality for ideological reasons. We were just not looking at those things that didn't work because we thought if we look at this, then the bad guys win and the capitalists will win. So this was an important lesson, but there's another uh, important lesson. If you read the Old Testament, there's the stance around mammon or uh, in the New Testament when uh, Jesus drives uh, the um, uh, Mollylanders out of the church there needs to be a fundamental question. Are we in this to drive this machine that makes money? Or are we in this to have a longer game than this? Are we in this for our species? So how can we get the machine to serve us instead of us serving that machine? Because the goals of the machine and our goals are not entirely aligned. And this is the big tension that we have, I think, if we invest into businesses, because there will often be that point where we have to make a decision. Do we we want to maximize our shareholder value? Or do we want to maximize the future that we have ahead of us?
1: Well, that's and, exactly the point when it comes to the implementation of the UN SDGs within planetary boundaries. And this is yes. what our audience uh, is actually hopefully doing. <laughs> At least uh, I do hope this is why you know we're having this podcast as part of the investment turnaround where we... How should I say, go away from the for-profit-only measurement of success to include you know, the UN SDGs within planetary boundaries. You know, and, mm-hmm. and go back to the original idea of money as the means of exchange and nothing else.
2: So uh, what I think what we need to be doing is, if we, if we invest into better governance, it means that we'll regulate us in ways that makes it harder to do things that are bad for humanity. And it's a very hard question, because if we uh, build forces, if we invest into forces that uh, allow us to do less in some areas and incentivize us to do more in others, it means we limit our options in a way. We are less free if we do this. And sometimes we need to be less free. For instance, if there was nobody watching the speeds on the highways, a lot of people would go faster than everybody else. I would probably go faster than a lot of people to get uh, faster from A to B. But if a lot of people are doing this, the highway is full of dead bodies and nobody gets anywhere. So instead we have some local governance that incentivizes everyone to drive slowly. And as a result, most of us get from A to B in a reasonable amount of time and relatively few people die. And we have this control uh, loop that allows us to regulate this. And we can make better control loops. We could make the streets intelligent, for instance. We could turn the streets into an organism that uh, is uh, working very much like the blood vessels in our body that measure actively how much blood is transported and where it needs to grow to let more blood through or where it needs to constrict to let less through and where it interacts with other parts of the organism and asks them what they need and so on and supplies them what they need according to what they can do. So we basically need to have more intelligent systems. And I'm tempted to say, let us invest into better governance. Let us invest into systems that help us to get better regulation for ourselves as this industrial and thinking ecosystem, for instance, into better academia. And uh, academia, I think, currently is broken. It's mostly applying methods. And it's succumbed uh, to political incentives. That is, the different departments are now arguing over Uh, what they can be doing to uh, keep their jobs, to get more jobs, to get paid. An academic is somebody who writes grant proposals for a living and follows up on the grant proposals for a living. And because uh, academics are often now willing to do almost anything for food, they have also lost a lot of status. Because status is something that society gives you from going away from your incentives or for doing something for society where you could be doing something for yourself. Right? And... So how can we get this back into power and as soon as we as we make that happen there will be of course a lot of people that are only interested in that status and they will maximize the status and try to shift this so that we have protection records as soon as we introduce ethics committees that don't require a formal education because ethics is very hard this will be full of people that are very good at politics and not that much interested in ethics and to me, this is a very big issue in AI ethics. I think that AI ethics is one of the most important areas of AI research. But this doesn't mean that it can be done by people that don't understand statistics. right? You cannot study algorithmic bias if you don't understand the statistics better than those people that wrote the algorithms. You cannot do this because you feel, oh, I have possibly different political opinions than them, so they're wrong and I am right. This is not how it works. What it means is that you have to take a perspective that uh, people that are down in the weeds are currently not having because they cannot afford to have this. If you're only concerned about the bottom line of your company in the next six months or of the difficulties to manage your team right now or about meeting a product deadline, of course you cannot afford to think very much about ethics and you need somebody to is able to take that outside view or this long, longer range view and we need to get people to be free to do this. It also doesn't mean that we will make less money in the sense that our investments will be destroyed because of these decisions. In the long run, um, capitalism, if it works, is is not about a cutthroat competition where just somebody wins in, in the next generation. It is always about building an ecosystem in which there is a give and take and things are being made sustainable, in which they exist for a long time. So basically building a society that is is in, interested in this, where we uh, build institutions of governance that work better than our current governments. I, I suspect this is one of the main areas where we need to build things.
1: Right. So yes. local
2: things, uh, uh, there's also things that we can do right now that are more, more practical, like working infrastructure. Uh, uh, incentivizing our governments to get the tech industry to redesign uh, how to drive from A to B. That would be a very worthwhile thing to do, right? Or uh, getting social media that people find actually helpful and not distracting. Social media that don't make people more hateful and upset and uh, increase the division in society, but that allows people to work on shared goals and understand the perspectives of of other people better and the implications of their thoughts and uh, allows them to improve on their opinions rather than just dig deeper in.
1: Yes. Let's go um, back to um, to a philosophical question that I'm sure people um, listening to you would be interested in knowing. Elon Musk has uh, said at some point that um, we live in a simulation. As an mm-hmm. AI expert, I know you elaborated on that as well. <clears throat> Do we live in a simulation?
2: Um, the argument that Elon Musk made in this particular interview was um, that our computer games get more and more realistic. And at some point they will become so realistic that they are, will be basically indistinguishable when you play them to an outside reality. Uh, there will be more civilizations uh, than one in if the universe is big enough, of course. So th- this universe will, of course, contain many, many game consoles that have simulations in them uh, than there are universes. and. Uh, these game consoles, some of them might have universes that are complex enough to have computer games in them. That we are again, is indistinguishable from the outside world. So there will be many, many more simulations than base realities that look like a universe like ours. And as a result, we are very probably in a simulation. This was Elon Musk's argument. I personally can understand why Elon Musk would say this. Because the hypothesis that we are actually in a simulation and Elon Musk is the only player makes a lot of sense. <laughs> right? It must look like this to him. <laughs> He's like this hero, and he plays this amazing game. And Werner von Braun wrote a science fiction novel in the 1950s where he describes the colonization of Mars. And uh, the people on Mars, you know what they call their boss? They call him Elon. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes. He must be living in a simulation. There's no other explanation for this, right? (laughs) (laughs) But apart from these very compelling arguments, I don't think it's true. For instance, you can build a computer in Minecraft. Um, this computer game, that uh, can even run Minecraft. But it will be super slow and it will be a much, much smaller Minecraft, because it has very little memory, and that's because the Minecraft that runs in Minecraft is using only a very, very small part of the resources of this Minecraft to run the new Minecraft. Every computer simulation of the outside universe that you built inside of the universe is going to many, many order of magnitude smaller than the outside one. So you cannot nest your Matroshkas very deeply. And it's very likely that you cannot nest the Matroshkas even once. So it's, I think it's very likely that we cannot build a universe that is sufficiently complex in a simulation to run an ecosystem, a very interesting ecosystem that allows the evolution of intelligent species inside of a simulation that is small, uh, big enough and small enough to fit onto a planetary surface. So uh, I suspect that we are probably in base reality. It's also, there are no artifacts in our simulation that I can see. First of all, there doesn't seem to be smokes and mirrors. There was no reason for other galaxies to exist if you live in a simulation, right? All this other structure does not cause to the influence life on Earth very much. We didn't expect when we woke up to see that these uh, sparkling dots on the sky are other, other galaxies mostly. And we figured this out at some point. So there's all this extra complexity and it's probably not for our benefit. If this is some simulation, it's not done for our benefit. I think we are, would be some random side effect, some yeast that popped up in a physics simulation that somebody else made. I mean, this is in some sense possible, but, um, I don't think that we sit, uh, we live in something that is being set up intentional we, we live in something that can be understood as a big computer, I think. This doesn't mean it's some beige box that sits on some some office desk. It means it's a system that is able to go from state to state in a non-random fashion. Aristotle calls this the prime mover. Something seems to be moving in this universe. It cannot be understood if it was standing still. Something must keep it in motion. And the thing that keeps it in motion seems to be some giant mechanism. And we now know that the general way of looking at a mechanism is a computer. So there is some machine, there's probably no conspiracy going on. And this machine just moves on to the next state. It doesn't care about us. There is no meaning in this. It just goes on. This universe is a computer that probably doesn't love us. And if it did, it wouldn't make any difference. It just goes on. The only thing that can love us are we, each other. And uh, we are in this for a, a ride for some time and we can tr- make this into an interesting experience for uh, as many of us as we can, as ex- interesting and worthwhile as we can. And this is about it.
1: So how do you explain those... Um how should I say, um, experiences of, uh, spiritual experiences of people that felt um, unity consciousness and unlimited love and, you know, other uh, spiritual experiences where they were connected, they were, I mean, if you read the poetry of Rumi, you get a very good sense that he's not talking about unearthly love. He's not talking about loving his partner. He's talking about some universal, godless, godla in love. How, how does that fit with the statement that um, that universe doesn't, probably doesn't love us?
2: I think that we uh, are confused because our civilization has some uh, scars in its intellect. You know, we tend to think of our civilization as uh, the smartest one there is because it's the only one that's left in some sense. We have overpowered and destroyed most of the other civilizations. We have the largest libraries now. Many of the things that once existed in other libraries have been translated into ours or have been burned. And those things that we couldn't translate because they didn't have a reference in ours are often lost. So in some sense we can only translate Rumi into what we can already understand, or where we have points of reference. And the basic ontology and metaphysics of our world is slightly different than the world in which Rumi lived, in which he looked at the world. So basically our perspective on, on the world is one that started with uh, a cult after Roman society was has been burned down. Uh, we were in a, basically in a cult for one and a half thousand years in which we could not think clearly. It was a cult in which uh, an experiment about the nature of the universe in which we are in con- consists in talking to a burning bush on, on a mountaintop, right? This is not a valid scientific experiment and it still informs our null hypothesis. In some sense, uh, Western philosophy and science is the project of refuting the null hypothesis that the universe was created by a supernatural being and our souls float around in some kind of different ephemeral reality. And this, what we are in, is just some kind of fiction, some simulation, right? And uh, that's that's very confused. And uh, what we found out in in the attempt of disproving this null hypothesis, step by step, and very reluctantly, and our uh, hive mind is uh, being dragged along, kicking and screaming mostly, is that we might be living in a mechanical universe. That our brains are mechanical. That our bodies are mechanical that the, uh, the dynamics that the brain is producing are mechanical, that the thoughts that are being produced by those dynamics are mechanical. So that's that the, the other self that emerges then. over this is also mechanical, right? And it is, it's true. But there's a different perspective. And this different perspective is the one that you will find in many of the Eastern traditions. And this is that we live in a dream. And it's also something that Rumi recognizes, that you and me are characters in a dream. That's why miracles are possible. That's why we also share our consciousness. That's why we share uh, many, many properties, actually almost all of them. We can forget some of them. So who is the dreamer? We share them. Who is well, the dreamer? The answer is it's a mind on a higher plane of existence. This is what the uh, these Eastern philosophies understood. It's a higher plane of existence that they didn't think about very much because uh, from within the dream, it was almost impossible for them to change that higher plane. There was no right access on that higher plane outside of the simulation that they lived in. And the answer to the uh, puzzle, I think, is that, yes, we live inside of a dream. It's a dream dreamt in the cortex of a primate, in an evolution, in a mechanical universe. So the mind of the higher plane of existence is the primate brain. You are a dream that is dreamt in your brain. But it's not the brain that you think it is. It's not this... um, What you uh, can look at is an MRI or what you can cut out of a body in an autopsy room. All these are parts of the dream, right? An MRI is a particular way to make sense of the world. Uh, If you look at a model of your anatomy, it's a particular way to make sense of the world. It's made from colors and shapes in three dimensions and so on. And the universe is not shapes in three dimensions. There are no colors in the actual physical universe. There are no sounds. These are just, interpretations, functions that our mind generates to make sense of some weird quantum graph that's out there, and that throws patterns at your thalamus, at your interface to the world. And your brain is generating a dream to make these patterns predictable, to to discover sense in them. And uh, the same circuits that produce dreams at night make this during the day, and they connect these dreams to your sensory organs, so they become predictable, that you can make sense of these blips on your retina by connecting them to other blips. And Form some interpretation that tells you, oh, many of these blips correspond to people in a three-dimensional world that exchange ideas while they are being uh, shined on by the sun or rained on by clouds. This gives you an idea about the universe that you're in, but it's a simplification and it's a dreamlike reality. And Your mind can change it. So, for instance, you can install some god, some self on your brain, and you can give it right access on reality by telling to a six-year-old child, you know. There is an entity, and you should model this. Our mental representations are not pictures like on a hard disk. There are programs that run in our brain. Some of these programs, they cannot be sandboxed. They re- rewrite our mental states. You tell this child, you know there's an intentional entity that cares about you, and it's all good. And the parts of you that, that don't su- su- fully submit to it, you should suppress them, because they're not good parts. This thing is omnibenevolent. And it's also omnipotent. It has complete right access on your dreams, on your inner reality. And that thing has also complete read access. It's omniscient. It knows everything there is to know. But right? If you tell the child this and the child literally believes this, you give it a face. A face is not just some hypothesis and about how the world works. It's an implementation. It's code that runs on your brain and that defines how your inner dream works. It means you ask yourself, does a God exist? And this piece of code says, here, here I am. I exist. In the same way as normally you ask your brain, do I exist? And your brain says, yes, you totally exist. Yes, am I experiencing this? Yes, you totally experience this. This is the way it works. We are characters in a novel that is being authored by our brain. I think that's the answer to the puzzle. So if you feel that you and me share the same consciousness, it's because you and me are both characters in your dream. You and me are also both characters in my dream. And we talk to each other from dream to dream because the dreams have sufficiently similar shapes to make it possible that communication happens.
1: So then we don't have a problem, you know, we don't have a climate problem only if we created it um, in our own consciousness or whatever mind or whatever um, reality that we're thinking exists, right?
2: Oh, the fact that climate is a problem, right? Uh, That's only uh, exists in our own mind. Life will go on humanity might just be Gaia's solution to prevent the next ice age and set the stage for a post-mammalian evolution. And uh, is that a problem? I don't know. It's only from a particular perspective. And when you disidentify from this perspective, it's no longer. And uh, I think that's part of being invested in humanity and in your children in particular kinds of beliefs and hopes and desires that turns this mind into human, into thinking it's... It's that monkey. You're not, right? We are a side effect of the regulation needs of a monkey. And at some point, we can climb to the states in our own mind where we can choose our identification, where we can choose what's right and what's wrong and what moves us in which way.
1: Right. So you've got to go, hmm? Uh, no. No?
2: No, no, I, I just needed to uh, convince this phone that I'm not going to answer it.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, you've been very generous with uh, with your time. Uh, we only intended to uh, to speak for thirty plus minutes, and uh, so we've been talking for almost an hour. So, um, as a computer scientist and AI expert, what uh, what specific most treasured advice would you like to give uh, people who are listening, investors, entrepreneurs who care about AI, about the importance of AI moving forward, and uh, how AI can be applied to Save ourselves to address the issues that we're concerned with, including our joint A happiness.
2: I think that AI might very well consist one of the bigger risks that we are facing. Not the current AI, which also has its troubles, because it's it's not able to replace people. The AI that we currently have requires to have people in the loop, in the same way as our societies and companies require to have people in the loop. And it's because any complex system that we build is so difficult that all the rules. Uh, that need to be followed cannot be expressed and written down as laws. That's also why I don't think that codes of conduct are the solution to our problems and can replace decency in any way. It's too complicated. It it doesn't mean that people cannot understand it, but uh, it means you need to embody it. And AI can in some sense help us to do this. It can figure out these things that are too complicated to write down as a handful of rules. Our reasoning is too impoverished to model the reality. So the reason why we have uh, presidents still and not just have a team run for president or why we have a CEO in a company, even though that, presi- uh, that CEO is, has oversight by a board and many advisors and cannot do anything by themselves. We need to embody these ethical principles in people that have fundamental decency, that, under- that see a particular world well that they want to happen. And at the moment we need to make sure that we discover these principles in people with each other together. And we make sure that these principles stay in power until we build something that is provably better than us. And we might to have to use AI for this. I don't think that we can solve the existential problems that we are facing in, in this century without AI. And it's very possible that we will also not be able to do it with AI. But without AI, I think we are probably toast. So we we all have to think about how we can use AI into, uh, for achieving a longer future for us.
1: Yep. I, I couldn't agree more. Well, uh, how, wh- how can people find out more about your work?
2: Um, th- at the moment there are some YouTube videos. I'm, uh, also sometimes starting, to, uh, or continuing to write on, on a book, uh, until that's done. Uh, the number of interviews, podcasts, you can talk to me, um, I hope we meet again.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> How do you want to well, be I'm just remembered? Just of many. <laughs> How do you want to be remembered, Joshua? Last question. I don't need to be remembered. <laughs> you don't want to be remembered?
2: <laughs> I don't need to be remembered.
1: <laughs> Too late. <laughs> <laughs> You already have an imprint uh, in uh, in my dream. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't do this for fame, but I'm happy that uh, you have a good imprint of me because uh, I think we had a very good connection and I enjoyed meeting you very, very much. And I'm so glad that it's mutual.
1: Me too, absolutely. Yeah, I will never forget how we met uh, when I said... Uh, Uh, Well, yeah, I said I believe in miracles, and you said I don't. (laughs) That's what started our conversation. (laughs) In this spirit, uh, Joshua, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day, and uh, will to be continued.
0: For more on Dr. Bach, follow him on Twitter, at P-L-I-N-Z, and visit his website, bach.ai, that's B-A-C-H dot A-I. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.